So let's go ahead and dive in to, um, into our text here in, uh, in Genesis. So we're here in Genesis 39. So, so over the last several weeks, uh, we've been following the life of who? Joseph, right? We've been following the life of Joseph. So up, uh, for the last several chapters. However, last week, we took a little bit of a, of a side quest, right? Just, uh, chapter 38 uh, kind of takes us a little bit off kilter from Joseph when we start looking at the life of Judah and his crew. And uh, let me tell you, it's bananas, okay? So if you, didn't watch, if you didn't watch or didn't hear the sermon last week, you need to go back and look at it. Um, it's, uh, it was Jerry Springer-level reality TV is what it was, okay? So uh, my Aunt Shelly, who, who watches online, she said that last week's sermon should have been rated R. Okay, that's, uh, that's, how, that's how crazy it was, okay? So you need to make sure that you go back and watch that. Uh, death, seduction, trickery, it's wild. So please go back and watch that and, and uh, listen to that sermon because it's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, but here in chapter 39, we get back to the life of Joseph. And uh, I, got, I got to tell you too, this morning in chapter 39, it's, uh, it's just as wild. So uh, we're going to be getting into some, some similar things this morning. Uh, so y'all, y'all are in for a treat. Um, so, but if you haven't been following along with this so far, I want to catch you up just a little bit of where we are in the life of Joseph. So, um, so of course, Joseph, we know, was born to Jacob and Rachel, the son of uh, 12 sons of Jacob. And uh, Joseph was pasturing along in the flocks of the field with his other brothers. Uh, but there was some jealousy among them. So, um, so those of us who are here, who, who here has children? Who has kids of their own? So those of you who raise your hands, how many of you, keep your hands up if you have a favorite child. Ooh, this is, if your kid's sitting right next to you and it's not them, that's a problem. So, of course not, of course not. None of us have a favorite child. We always say that we, we love our children equally, right? Regardless of how sassy they are at three years old, like mine is. Um, but some of you say you don't have a favorite, but who's your password? Which kid's birthday is your password? So, I'm just saying, you can't argue, you can't argue with the evidence, okay? So... So, but of course not. Of course, we don't have a favorite kid. We don't have favorite kids. Um, but I'll tell you right now, the reason some of this jealousy was happening among the brothers is because Jacob did have a favorite kid. We learned that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons, and the other sons knew it. And it was causing some bad blood uh, b- uh, between them. And, and Jacob didn't even try to hide it. He didn't even try to hide that he had one favorite son. In fact, he, he made him this really cool, sweet robe of many colors that he got to strut around in. and gave it to him as a gift. Now, as I was uh, researching this, this is incredible, y'all. I didn't even know they had cameras back then, but they actually recently unearthed a photo of what this, uh, what this robe looked like. And it, it looks very similar to the Ric Flair one that uh, Pastor Scott showed us last week. But here's what it actually looked like. <laughs> Joseph looked a lot like Kramer, so um, <laughs> apparently. But... Uh, so yeah, so not only did Joseph, was Joseph strutting around in this sweet, sweet robe, right? But much like Kramer, uh, but uh, he, he also starts telling his brothers of some of these dreams that he's been having. And, uh, and in these dreams, his older brothers are bowing down to him, right? So of course, that's going to that's gonna cause some bad blood between your brothers. And so finally, his brothers have had enough and they plot to kill him. But thanks to the last-minute money-grabbing, honestly, idea from his brother Judah, they end up just faking his death and selling him into slavery. And so, I mean, why just kill him for nothing when I guess you can get some, some cash out of the deal, right? Yeah, there you go. So someone's with me. So uh, we need to watch out for him, by the way. Um, so, so they sell him into slavery, and then they head back with this fancy robe, and then they kind of mess up the robe a little bit, dip it in some goat's blood, and, uh, and then they give it to their father, Jacob. I'm like, hey, look what we found, Dad. Have, uh, have, have you ever seen this robe before? 
Of course he's seen it. He's the one that gave it to him, right? So, so they tricked Jacob into thinking that Joseph had been eaten by some kind of wild animal. And this is where we left Joseph at the end of chapter 37. And this is where we're going to pick up this morning. So his father weeping, thinking that his son had been devoured by some kind of animal. And meanwhile, he's resold to some guy named Potiphar. And this is where, this is where we pick up in chapter 39. So go ahead and open up, uh, look with me in chapter 39. And we're going to read this together um, as we see where we're picking up in the life of Joseph. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him and made him overseer of the house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him an overseer to the house all over he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing, um, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything he has in my charge, he is not greater in this house than I am, for he, ha- um, for he has, um, sorry, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as he saw that he had his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. And she said said to him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, his place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him the favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were there in the prison. Whatever that was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It's Genesis chapter 39. So before we get into this, let me, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for Genesis chapter 39. God, thank you for the book of Genesis. Thank you for allowing us to see your promises continue to unfold without fail, God. So God, this morning, we ask that you give us ears to hear what you have for us in this, uh, in these, this text here in chapter 39, God. We know that it's going to continue to point us to you, point us to your love for us, and point us to uh, getting more and more acquainted with who you are and, um, and to see more and more of your glory, God. So we love you. Give us these ears to hear. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. 
So I read something um, on Twitter recently that kept coming to mind as I was studying for, uh, to preach this morning, and, um, and it's this right here. When approaching scripture, it's easy to ask, what am I to get out of this? Instead, ask, what is this to get out of me? Now, I, I tried to go back to see who wrote this. I couldn't find it. So if you know who wrote it, let me know, because I, I want to make sure to, to give them credit. But in other words, what this is saying is... Um, what, the, what is the Lord inviting us to learn about him this morning in Genesis 39? I mean, what is the Lord inviting us to do, and how is he inviting us to live in, in slight of what we're seeing here in verse 39? Not what can I get out of it? What is the Lord inviting me to do because of this? And so this is one of the things I want us to make sure that we're doing, because what I believe is this morning we see three different things that we're going to see out of this. We're going to see God's faithfulness, God's forgiveness, and God's favor on us. I believe that is what the Lord has to, for us to see here in Genesis 39. So, um, so I'm excited to continue to walk through this uh, with you guys. So, um, so it might be hard to see now, but this is what I believe he has for us. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to jump in in verse, nine, in verse 1 and continue to walk through this. So, so now Joseph had been brought down from Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So this is simply showing us, this is connecting us back to the end of chapter 37, since we took a little bit of a hiatus in chapter 38. Um, and so this is okay. So we know that he was sold to this guy named Potiphar. So, so what do we know about, about Potiphar? Well, we know that he was an officer of the Pharaoh, captain of the guard, and an Egyptian himself. So this wasn't just some random cat. This wasn't some random guy. Um, this, was a, this guy was a big deal, probably among the elite um, of, of Egyptian society. So we continue and see, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So much like now, um, chapters, uh, several chapters ago, we actually kind of saw a similar event happen, where Laban recognized the Lord's favor on Jacob. And so just like that, we're kind of seeing a similar tone to this now, where now Potiphar recognizes the Lord's favor on the son of Jacob, Joseph. So we're kind of seeing those, that generational promise of God continuing to keep his promise of, of blessing those that bless, um, that bless uh, the line of Abraham. And he sees that anything Joseph does, it succeeds. So what does Potiphar do? Well, Potiphar puts everything that he has in charge uh, under Joseph's charge. So we see in the next verse that he entrusted his estate so completely to Joseph that the only thing he had to worry about was what his next meal was going to be. And that must be pretty nice, right? That's, um, that, that everything under Joseph's charge, that's the only thing he had to worry about. So all of this sets the stage for uh, this debacle that's going to uh, happen for the rest of this chapter. So what we see is Joseph, technically a slave, put in charge of an elite estate with no one breathing down his neck. So it seems to, it seems to things uh, seem to be looking up for Joseph, which is, which is nice considering where he's been coming from. And we learn that not only does Joseph have success because of God's favor, Apparently, he's got the looks, too. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So, and by the way, um, this is the real reason that I'm preaching today. Um, our, uh, our pastoral team got together, and we decided that I need to be one to preach this as an example of this verse to your church. So, um, so you're welcome. And um, so, that's ridiculous. Okay, so... Uh, but, but yeah, so Joseph was quite a looker, and, um, and so things keep, keep getting better for Joseph. Not only successful, but he's also got the looks, but this is where the story takes a turn. Enter Potiphar's wife. 
And after a time, Potiphar's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So apparently Potiphar's wife also thought that Joseph had the Blake vibe. Handsome and a form and appearance, right? So, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I meant the Paul, Paul McDade vibe. Um, so now, now keep in mind that Potiphar is a high up official, right? And so who's probably hanging out with Potiphar everywhere? His wife, right? So, so through association, Potiphar's wife is also likely a person of influence in Egyptian society. So, and who was probably not told no a lot? Potiphar's wife, right? But people of influence are typically not told no very often. So, which makes Joseph answer to her even more shocking. But he refused and said his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph refuses. This is a big deal, big deal too, because remember, Joseph is a slave to Potiphar. And he would be subject to Potiphar and Potiphar's wife's commands. So not to mention, in this society, fooling around with your slaves was pretty common, unfortunately. So, which is probably one of the reasons why Potiphar's wife's request was kind of so, you know, cavalier, just very nonchalant, like almost like she's asking for a, a cup of water or something. Hey, good looking, let's do this. Right? right? It's just very flippant, it seems. But Joseph refuses, and the commands, uh, Joseph refuses the commands of this master. And his response shows us something about Joseph's character. He doesn't just say no, he actually gives reasons as to why uh, he's saying no. And all of them are, are reasons of honor. Um, so the first reason we see is here in verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master has no concern about anything. So the first matter of honor that Joseph is saying is, is trying to honor his master Potiphar. No way am I going to sleep with you. Look what he's done for me. Look what Potiphar has given me. Look what he's done for me. He's given me everything except one thing, which leads us to the second matter of honor for Potiphar. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. In other words, what he's saying is, not only couldn't I jeopardize what Potiphar's entrusted me with, I especially couldn't do it with his own wife. Then Joseph gives his final but most important reason. Not only is this an offense to Potiphar and his wife, but it's a sin against God. So for all of these reasons, he's telling her no. By the way, if you look at the original language there, for her, lie with me is actually a two-word request, and he gives a paragraph answer as to no. So that's a, yeah, so it's not just a no, it's a let me explain why no, and he, and he gives all of these reasons. Good for Joseph, not, not only honoring Potiphar and his wife, but most importantly, honoring God. Now, isn't it just as easy for us to refuse temptation lobbed our way? I mean, without hesitation, we always refuse to engage in wickedness and sin against God, right? I mean, I know for me, every time I'm tempted, I like karate chop that sin away, right? Y'all with me? Every single time, right? Are y'all, y'all still sin? Gracious. So, no, of course not. We always, we always are going to, not always, but very often we give in to this temptation in front of us. We often don't refuse like Joseph did. I know I often don't refuse. And why is that? Because we're sinners, and sinners are going to sin, right? That's what we do, right? When, when given the choice to sin, we often choose to do so. We often choose to give in to that temptation. So, had we been in Joseph's shoes in this situation, it could have gone very, very differently. 
He could have so easily pulled up to one of my favorite stations, Justification Station. So yeah, so how often do y'all spend some time here at this train stop, right? Justification Station, yeah, we're there all the time, right? So how easy would it have been for Joseph in this particular um, this particular uh, situation to justify this sin? I mean, here's just a small list of things that he could have said to justify this, right? I mean, my family's far away. They'll never know. And I mean, the house is empty. It says that all the men were out, so no one's going to know. Or, or this is my boss, after all. I technically have to follow her commands. Or... I don't want to hurt her feelings. It might make it awkward around the house. Or this will advance my career, further honoring God. Man, how many of y'all turn sin into virtue? Yeah, that's like, a, that's like a Christian 201 sinning, right? So yeah. Or I don't want to jeopardize my position of influence. I'm doing this for God after all. Or I'm a slave and probably won't mat, uh, ever marry, so what's the harm? Right? Or on and on and on and on it could go, right? We, we could always find a justification for the sin right in front of us. And here's what we know about temptation. We want to sin. That's just the bottom line. We want to, get, to enter into that temptation. Scripture calls our hearts what? I'm asking for an answer. What, is, what does Scripture call our hearts? Neutral and kind of nice? Wicked. wicked. Yeah, no. Scripture calls our hearts desperately wicked. And it's never hard for us to justify the sin in front of us because our hearts want to engage in that sin. But here's also what we know about temptation and sin that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we often know when we're being tempted. I mean, not every time, but we often, there's lots and lots of times where we know that we are being tempted. We have a choice in front of us whether to engage in that sin or not. And often, if you're anything like me, you choose to engage in that sin. But in those moments, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is true. And why is it true? Is it true because God's asking you to white-knuckle it and resist because of your iron will? Does it say you are faithful in this verse? What does it say? God is faithful. We are not faithful. It says that God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. We are not faithful. We are broken, sinful, wicked, but God is faithful to us. He protects us. He rescues us from ourselves. What a good God we serve. What a good father we have in heaven who watches out in such intimate and vulnerable ways. So stop trying to white knuckle your way out of that persistent sin in your life. That's not what God's asking you to do. Ask God for help because he will help. Or maybe the way that God's going to help you is maybe you need to have a friend that will, ask, that will fight alongside you in this. Maybe that's the way God's going to choose to help you in these moments. It's through your friend. And this is also where we at the Refuge Church, this is where we want to help. You, you hear us talk a lot at the Refuge about community and family and community that feels like family. And we celebrate a lot about how the Lord chooses to bring us together. That this, this crazy group of people would not be in this room together if it wasn't for Jesus. And we wouldn't be able to call each other brothers and sisters in Christ if it wasn't for Christ. He's the one that brings us together. He's the one that makes us family. And I can't tell you the number of stories that I've heard of a gospel community group rallying around one of their members in a time of need. It happens all the time. And needs aren't just financial. Sometimes in community, we get to fight sin together as well. We get to 
bear one another's burdens, as Scripture says, um, in those moments. So whether it's in your gospel community group or maybe in a smaller group of men or women, we call them DNA groups, uh, you're able to dig in together. You're able to be vulnerable with one another. You're able to support one another. You're able to pray by name daily for one another. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Church, this, this isn't just about showing up on Sundays. That's not the Christian life. That's not the only part of Christian life. I'll put it that way. And you've probably heard us talk about this. You've probably heard Pastor Scott say a lot from up here that it's not just about getting, um, showing up on Sundays. It's about serving, right? Um, but it's also our deep desire that everyone at Refuge gets to experience life in the gospel, life in community, and life on mission. That's at the core of what we hope for our people is they get to experience that for themselves, not just hear us talk about it. So we don't just want free labor out of you. We do want free labor out of you, but not just free labor, okay? So um, don't, don't miss my words. Um, but we also want to make sure that you are being discipled. And we need to make sure that we're teaching you to disciple others. Because this Christian life doesn't terminate upon you. It's about what we can teach you and about what you can teach others and then what they teach others. That's what the church is, from generational discipleship. So yes, you'll reap benefits from it yourself. But your fellow family members need you to support them as well. So if this is something that you want to be a part of, let us know. Let me know. Let a blue shirt know. We want to get you plugged into that because there is more to being a Christian than just showing up this Sunday. We'd love for you to be a part of that. So, all right, let me get off that. I'm going to get off that, uh, that soapbox and let's continue. So Potiphar's wife makes a proposition and Joseph refuses. So, so what does she do? She, uh, she politely retracts, apologizes for the imposition and respects his decision and all as well, Right? That we see? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, and he would, or nor would he lie beside her. So this is one persistent lady, okay? She is, um, us handsome informant appearance guys got to watch out, right? So yeah, so yeah, they, uh, she was not giving up. She kept badgering him. So there's over and over every single day. But Joseph still refuses. In fact, he takes it a step further than just saying no. So being faced with the opportunity to engage in sexual immorality, what does Joseph do? It says that he ignored her. He wouldn't listen to her. And he even took it a step further, that he wouldn't even just lie beside her or to be with her. He didn't just say no. He took it a step further to ensure that he wasn't engaging in that sin. So they kind of skate along like that until one day she levels up her game, literally grabs him by the clothes and demands yet again, let's do this. But what does he do? It says in verse 12, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So not only did Joseph continually refuse her, he wouldn't even listen to her or lie beside her. And now as she levels up her aggression, he levels up his rejection and literally flees from her. He doesn't laugh it off. He doesn't consider it. He doesn't discuss it. He flees from her and runs out of the house is, the, is the kind of the picture that it's painting here. So I'll ask again, is this how you approach sin? More specifically, as it's speaking here, is this how you approach sexual sin? It's a topic we don't like to talk about a lot. Here in Genesis 39, Joseph is demonstrating the New Testament command we see in 1 Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. How often do we see how close we can get to that line? 
I mean, maybe not just sexual immorality, but all sin. How close can we snuggle up to that line without crossing it? Joseph could have said, he could have made a trip back to Justification Station, right? He could have said, well, I won't sleep with her, but maybe if I just lie next to her, she'll leave me alone. Maybe if I just talk with her, maybe flirt with her a little bit, it'll help ease the tension of the situation. But that's not what happened. He got as far from that sin as he could until he was literally running away. So what, what might that look like for us today? I mean, you might not have someone literally grabbing you by the shirt, dragging you to bed, but surely many of you are thinking of situations that you've been in. For those of you who aren't married, maybe this is what it looks like. Maybe you have a significant other, and y'all examine that line a lot. I know we shouldn't have sex, but we're only fill in the blank. How close can we get to that line and still be able to say, well, we're not having sex, though? Or maybe it looks like, fellas, those of you who struggle with sexual images on your screens, you might say to yourself, I would never go to that website, but you linger over certain content on Instagram. It's not porn. It's just a girl in a bathing suit. We're justifying that sin. Are you fleeing from sexual immorality? Or are you hanging out in justification station? I mean, be honest with yourself. Because here in 1 Corinthians, we see that it's not just a sin against that person, which it is. It's a sin against God, and it's a sin against your own body. In other words, it's damaging to your soul, no matter how it might feel, no matter how satisfying it might feel in that moment. So I urge you, church, to, to flee from sexual immorality. The name of the game isn't to snuggle up as close as we can to that line without going over it. Because, let's be honest, all that does, all that game does is put a spotlight on the fact that your heart wants to engage in that sin. That's all it's doing. You're not fooling anybody. Flee. Do not play that game. Do not play with fire. Now, instead of heaping more condemnation upon you, because surely there's some in this room who are struggling with these very things or something similar, let me remind you again that God is faithful. God is faithful. So I'm not here to tell you to do better or try harder next time, not to, not to white-knuckle it even harder next time, and maybe you'll get through it. That's not what we teach here. That's not what I believe Scripture teaches. When tempted, for the first time or the thousandth time, look to God to help you escape because he promised to do so in those moments. He promised to. He's not just up in the clouds with his, with his arms crossed, with a furrowed brow, just waiting for you to mess up. That's not the God that we serve. He's in your midst. He's in that hole, giving you a boost out of that mess. That's the God we serve. So in those moments, be encouraged and look for God in those moments because he's there. And he will help you out of those situations. And I want you to be encouraged because I want you to know you don't have to fight this sin alone. Most importantly, God is there to help you out of that, but we have a community of people that also want to help fight that with you. So look for help because it's around you. So let's keep moving. So Joseph ran out of the house garmentless, or at least one garment less than he had. I like to think that he ran out of there buck naked, but uh, 
Scripture doesn't say. Scripture doesn't say. So, um, but that's just what I see in my mind. It's him running out of there literally naked. Um, but uh, so, but uh, we'll think what you want. Uh, but then Potiphar's wife cooks up a plan and a lie to get out of this. And she says to her servants, she gets her servants around her, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So she lies about the encounter, telling her servants her version of this story. Then she lies his garment right next to her and waits for her husband to get home and tells him the same story. But... As she's telling him the story, she slips in a little line that's an arrow of insult just for him. The Hebrew servant, whom you brought among us, came in to me to laugh at me. So likely embarrassed of her rejection, a situation she probably doesn't find herself in very often, she lashes out to shift blame off of herself, saying to Potiphar, look what happened. This is your fault because you brought him here. So it looks to me like not only is she lying to save face in light of rejection, but she's now trying to rile up her crew around her. I mean, not only Potiphar, but did you notice back in chapter in verse 14, when she was telling her servants her story, she also slipped in, he came to laugh at us. She's pulling them in too. She's trying to get her crew on her side as she's cooking up this lie. She's riling up those people to get them on her side, which is a common tactic for people who are reeling from rejection, from hurt. Um, or just embarrassed that they made a mistake. So she doesn't repent. She doesn't even let it go. She digs her heels in. And unfortunately, it works. Angry because of, the life his wife, because of the lie his wife told him, and also feeling guilty from the accusations she had just for him, he throws Joseph in prison. Seems like a pretty bad deal. Just when, just when Joseph's life started looking up, Right? He was thrown in prison by a false accusation. But even here, we see that God is still faithful. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. But God. It's one of my favorite verses, one of my favorite phrases we see littered all throughout Scripture. Even in a prison, we see the Lord showing love and favor to Joseph. God is faithful. So much so that we finish this chapter by seeing that the warden of this prison pulls a Potiphar and puts all of the other prisoners under Joseph's charge. So regardless of the environment we find Joseph in, the Lord's favor causes Joseph to succeed there. But I don't want you to miss this phrase. But the Lord was with Joseph. This is an important phrase to the story here in chapter 39. In fact, it isn't the first time we've seen this chapter in this phrase. Way back in, in verse 2, we saw it say, the Lord was with Joseph, just like we see here in verse 21. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So verse 2 and verse 21, bookending this narrative of Joseph's success among lies and slavery. These bookends display the ever-present presence of God. The Lord was with Joseph. Not merely the Lord blessed Joseph, or the Lord assisted Joseph, or the Lord gave Joseph a leg up. The Lord was with Joseph. So there you have it. Genesis 39. 
a snapshot of one of the many tough seasons for Joseph, sold to an Egyptian elite, given influence in the side of his master, pursued and then falsely accused by his master's wife, thrown from an opulent household into a dirty prison, and again favored by his new master and given influence again. So again, I'll ask, when approaching scripture, it's easy to ask, what am I to get out of this? Instead, ask, what is this to get out of me? What is the Lord inviting us to see in the story of Joseph? Many of you might have been taught a moral of, a story, of the story similar to this. Be more like Joseph. When you're feeling down, trust God, just like Joseph did, and he will make you prosperous. Or maybe you've been taught, when encountering sin, just try hard to resist, just like Joseph did, and make God happy. These are common morals taught from these stories. Be more like Moses. Be more like Noah. Be more like Abraham. Now, be more like Joseph. Is this what God is inviting us to see here in Genesis 39? Is this, the, is this what we're to see throughout all of the Old Testament? To see how we can be more and more like the heroes of the faith? No. The moral of the story is not to be more like hero Joseph. Looking closely at the story, who's the real hero? Why was Joseph successful? Who was it that provides a way of, who provides a way of escape in the light of temptation? God was with Joseph. God provides a way of escape. God is the hero in Genesis 39. The whole Bible, even the Old Testament, is not a book of disconnected stories. It's not just a book about the heroes of the faith and how to be more like them. It's a whole story pointing us to what God has done for us. It's a whole grand narrative culminating in God's greatest demonstration of love for us, which is what? Jesus, death, and resurrection. In fact, Heath Harrell said it well when he preached here at Refuge just a few weeks ago. Looking at Joseph's life, there are many parallels between Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, and Jesus, the beloved son of God. Watching the life of Joseph points us to the life of Jesus. And just like he said a few weeks ago, the parallels are no coincidence. Joseph was rejected and humiliated by his brothers. Who else was rejected and humiliated by those he loves? Jesus. Joseph, here in chapter 39, was tempted but fled from sin. Who else didn't give in to sin but was tempted in every way? Jesus. Now, unlike Joseph, Jesus did it perfectly. Joseph was falsely accused. Who else was falsely accused? Jesus. And as we've seen throughout the story, it doesn't only serve as an allegory to the life of Jesus, which it does. We see Joseph himself derives his success from God. In the life of Joseph, we see God's faithfulness, God's forgiveness, and God's unmerited favor. And in Genesis 39, just like all of the Bible, it's an invitation for us to see Jesus. We see Joseph, I'm sorry. And as we see and as we continue to see, Joseph's life serves as a parallel to point us to Jesus. So to close, I want us to look at one of these parallels a little bit more closely, but in a little bit different light. So the most dramatic part of our story this morning was in Potiphar's wife falsely accusing Joseph. Falsely accused of something he didn't do. And what was a moment of righteousness for Joseph was turned around on him, landing him in prison. 
So the obvious parallel that we see, like we just said, was that Jesus was also falsely accused. Jesus was not a liar or a lunatic, like many believed him to be. He is the son of God that he claims to be, but people didn't believe him, which is why he was crucified for it. But this isn't the only parallel I want us to see. In the grand narrative of our faith, Jesus and Joseph aren't the only ones who stood accused. In Romans, we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And guess who all includes? You and me, all of us. All of us stand accused of sin. But unfortunately for us, these accusations are not false. We must plead guilty because we are guilty. I gave some examples earlier of the justifications we whisper to ourselves to make sin more palatable. And and I gave some other examples of how many of us might be struggling with specific sins, maybe even sexual sin. And I know that it hit home with many, if not all of you. It hits home with me. And it may not have been the sins that I mentioned by name, but it might have been the sins that you're glad that I didn't mention. I'm sure a lot of us had things that come to mind. We all stand guilty in the face of these accusations. Thanks a lot, Blake. Why do you keep heaping condemnation on us? Well, the reason I keep doing this is because I want you to feel the weight of this condemnation just for a moment before I tell you this good news, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We stand accused because we are guilty. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Amen? Amen. Jesus paid the the debt of our guilt. This is good news, y'all. This is great news. This is what we're going to be celebrating next week. But some of you might be asking, how do we ensure that I'm in Christ? Here's the answer from the Bible, and it sounds too easy to be true. Confess and believe. Sounds too easy to be true. Also in Romans, we read that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess and believe. Confess that you are guilty of sin and unable to pay the debt of that sin on your own. I got news for you. No amount of goodness will ever outweigh your badness. It's not a scales game. Believe that Jesus did pay that sin on your behalf because he's the only one that can pay that debt because of his goodness. Joseph trusted in God and God blessed him. God kept his promise to even bless Joseph and to bless those who bless him. God keeps his promises. God is faithful. And we get to enjoy the favor of God because Jesus not only paid for our sin, but also gave us his righteousness. It's good, good news. God keeps his promises to us and redeemed us back to himself. God forgives us because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. And God favors us because when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness given to us freely. This is good news. And this is the good news that I believe God is inviting us to see in the life of Joseph. We get to live free, no longer under the penalty of sin, 
no longer condemned because of the true and better Joseph, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us.